Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. So, welcome. Um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a heavy topic, which could also be light. You know, it's you know, kind of touching on, you know, gifts of hard times, trials, tests, and all the shit that we go through in our lives. And trust me when I say <laughs> that we each went through our own little trials in the preparation for this episode. Oh, my goodness. I can't even tell you how many different websites, how many different research articles. And just fun videos of, you know, different people. Well, I say fun videos. Some of them were fun, but some of them were just videos of people's stories and the things that they have gone through and made it to the other side, you know, mm. coming through a, a series of different types of hardships or just everyday challenges. They don't even have to be major hardships, just everyday challenges and finding ways to work through them. So as we get started, I do want to remind everybody that this is a casual conversation. <laughs> and even when our subject matter is a little bit more deep than some of the others, it's non-prescriptive, but it is designed to like kind of invite you into our mind expansion of all of the things that we have been reading about and, you know, diving deep into. And if any of the subject matter should feel really, really heavy on your heart, on your shoulders, see the body parts heavy in yourself, please call someone. Please reach out to someone who can help you. We're going to offer some things that other people feel might help, which I want to say right now, there is a podcast by a woman, a yoga teacher out in Calif uh, Colorado. Her name is Buffy Barfoot, and she does a beautiful podcast called Things That Will Help. And just throwing that out there. We're not really friends. We don't know each other, but it's a it's a cool podcast. But so, you know, in the in the realm of things that will help, if you feel after listening to this, and I have no idea, we we do this, we don't it's unscripted. So we're not exactly sure where we're going. We have bullet points, we have ideas, we've we've prepared. But if things should come up that feel heavy for you, please reach out and find someone to talk to. Because we are going to be talking about you know, this series of tests that we go through in our life and how we approach them, how the brain is wired to both support and also default. So we can look at some of those, how our, how our practices can help, but how our brain is wired to notice things that could potentially be dangerous. That's what our brain was designed to do, was to help us stay safe, stay alive. That's our evolutionary pattern of our past. And I got to say this because we were talking a lot about, you know, why is it that we, it is so much easier to hold on to, to believe, to feel the bad things, you know, the negativity the, and that we do kind of have this, what they call a negativity bias. And almost every <laughs> single article that I opened up had a quote from Pretty Woman when Julia Roberts' character says, the bad stuff is easier to believe. You ever notice that? And that's from Pretty Woman in 1990. And it's just, I think, one of those universal things that may go back to what Teresa talked about, the way, our, the way we're wired. We're hardwired in a certain way in order to survive. But what survival looks and feels like has changed over millennia. Yeah, you know, when I read about the negativity bias and why our brain goes there, one of the things that kept showing up for me was that it's a crucial evolutionary adaptation to 
stay well, to stay protected and to notice and to trust in our own instincts to let us know when we're in a unsafe situation. And then it expands into so many other places that maybe it was designed to, but maybe not. Maybe we have taken it out to an extreme, this evolutionary adaptation to stay safe. Well, yeah, you know, when the ringing of a telephone is tantamount to being chased by a mountain lion, then we got to kind of look and see what are the things that are, you know, making us gasp or hold our breath or, you know, feel in that fight, flight or freeze moment. And that is, you know, on the one hand, a, a safety, a security measure to stay alive for, for our survival. But what does that look like, feel like? And how can we, like you said, adapt to the new, the new uh, influences in our lives? Yeah, and we will, you know, we talk, you and I, a lot about balance and how to stay in balance. And if you've listened to the past two podcasts about the feminine and the masculine energies that we hold within us, the word balance came out a lot. In this research, what I found was that the positive negative sensations, this negativity bias, is an asymmetry that goes on in our body, that we are Inspired more to that protective part of our system than we are to the positive, to noticing the negative and the dangers. And I found it fascinating after all this talk that we've had about being in balance right. to step into some research that says, you know, this is an asymmetry that we have to learn and understand and accept, but then also create practices and patterns that will help us to perhaps bring it more into balance. So that's going to lead me right into a quote, more than a quote, because I'm going to read a little bit passage from an article called, The Bad Stuff is Easier to Believe, Maybe, But Does It Help Us Grow? by someone named Patrice Thornton. They say, we humans tend to give more weight in our minds to the things that go wrong than to the things that go right. For a multitude of reasons, including biology and chemistry, which I think is just amazingly fascinating, we're more likely to register an insult or negative event than we are to take in a compliment or recall details of a happy event. It is the quote-unquote bad things that grab our attention, stick to our memories, and in many cases, influence the decisions that we make. Almost everyone remembers negative things more strongly and in more detail. I'm going to keep going because I think this is really interesting. It's called negativity bias, and it means our brains process the bad stuff more thoroughly than positive things. So when we receive criticism, it can have a greater impact than when we receive praise. Even when we experience numerous good events in one day, negativity bias can cause us to focus on the sole bad thing that occurred. Not only do negative events and experiences imprint more quickly, but they also linger longer than positive ones. And it is compounded by not only remembering incorrectly, but we also tend not to forget it. Mm, ah, holding on yeah. to the past, man. Right? That leads me right into the power of bad. How negativity <laughs> affects, rules us, and how we can rule it. This is a book written by. Roy Boomeister, and who is a social psychologist, and John Tierney, who is the, uh, a New York Times writer. And they shared in my research a couple of really interesting studies. Okay, so this is a simple little study, but I found it fascinating. The study is, is that they had children in school, and they gave each child a jar. So one of those jars was empty. And in one condition, every time the child got a right answer, they were given a, a marble that they could keep and put into their jar. So they were, were rewarded for all of their right answers. In the other condition, the jar was full of marbles to the very top. And every time they got a wrong answer, a marble was taken away. And what they found in here is that the kids learned faster and more when they were when they knew something would be taken away from them than they did when they were being rewarded, which is so opposite of some of the things that I learned. Remembering all the way back into season one, 
when Amy talked about positive reinforcement, Amy McKay from Lead the Way, when she talked about, you know, working with dogs and catching positive responses and rewarding them in a way to influence behavior. So, you know, I guess whatever you're researching, we can find things on both sides of that scale. It feels counterintuitive as a parent, you know, that I don't want to be taking things away. I don't want, you know, the feeling or create a culture of punishment over, you know, minor infractions. We had growing up the incentives, you know, and Mm -hmm. but that also has, you know, this uh, could potentially, I don't want to say harmful, but other side to it where there's a conditioned response, almost Pavlovian, you bring the bell, you come, you do your thing, that <laughs> if I if I do this, then I can eat a, a bag of M&Ms. Or, you know, if I do this, then I get to, you know, that there's, it's almost like if I don't get that, then why even bother? You know, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. I kind of like the idea that we can work towards something rather than against something that we feel is impactful in a negative way, but that we can work towards one. But the research, and, you know, of course, it's limited to a number of books and websites and different things, positive psychology that we found. But I found an overabundance of information that we have this negativity bias that can lead us into making choices and decisions based on fear and negative outcomes. So imagine you're going through your life and you're la, 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 walking down your path. Oh, there's an obstacle. I'm going to walk around that. Oh, I'm going to walk, jump over that one up. I'm going to kick that one down the lane and meet up with it later. That if in this negativity bias, if that is something that is conditioned, maybe beyond, you know, we do all these practices. So this is, it feels so theoretical, but it also feels real. Like I get it, but imagine how difficult it is to meet those trials, those tests, those challenging times, those moments where they just seem insurmountable. When on top of that, there's this heaviness of this bias that is directing the person who's on that journey, maybe into a darker place. But (laughs) there's good news too. There's light in that (laughs) darkness because, you know, we have not dissolved duality yet. And in this article, the surprising benefit of going through difficult times, I will put this in the show notes. I don't want to mispronounce the writer's name and I, I will. So I will step back from that. But this is, she says, we have a choice in how to respond to difficult times. Oh, let me start over here. She says, as Ella Fitzgerald once sang, into each life, some rain must fall. And while we can't, and I'm quoting this, oh, sorry about that. And while we can't control just how much it rains, we can make a decision. Let ourselves get wet or break out the umbrella. The rain, of course, is the challenging times that we all face. Medical diagnosis, divorce, job loss, even just navigating the teen years as a parent. Yes, I can attest. And while it may not seem like it at first, something positive can come from the experience. We have a choice in how we respond to difficult times. We can shut down emotionally and let ourselves become hardened by it, or we can grow from the experience. She says there's actually a term for the process, and it's called post-traumatic growth, and it refers to the benefit and personal growth that comes from experiencing a crisis, or as the author refers to the process, the phoenix. I won't go on right now. Oh, wait, will I? Oh, oh, this is interesting. So I just want to put this in here so I can now put this paper to the side. She says, research has found, I I think it's a she, I don't know. The person who says, the research has found that up to 70% of people experience positive psychological growth from difficult times, such as a deeper sense of self and purpose, a greater appreciation for life and loved ones, and an increased capacity for altruism, empathy, and desire to act for the greater good. So while the transition from old to new was natural for the mythical creature, in the real world, we can learn how to change and grow no matter what the obstacles we face. And so while when we're in the middle of it, we're in it, now I'm unquoting, now this is me talking. But when, so when we're in the middle of an acute situation where we're suffering, you know, it's hard to know that there's growth, that there's, you know, I had a friend who once said, the worst thing you can say to someone who's, who's, suffering is everything happens for a reason. Well, I do believe everything happens for a reason, but I also believe there's a time 
to say that. <laughs> and it's not at the time when someone is bleeding all over you and is wounded and is feeling, you know, all of that, that suffering. The time is with perspective. After the fact, ask the question, what did you think you learned from it? How did you grow from this experience? And the more experiences that we have that we can grow through, the more we know next time that we will survive it, that we will get through it, that this is impermanent, that the high, the high times, the good times are impermanent, and so are the low times. So the practices that we offer and the conversations that we're having are all planting seeds. They're just an opportunity to remember when we are in these acute situations. We don't have to fully embody it at the time. I don't know that that's even possible because we there's a process to go from wounded to healed or scarred, and then that's a different conversation. But that the more times we go through them, the more we get, oh, I, I, I know what's going on now. I'm going to feel shitty right now, and I, you know, I might feel better tomorrow or in a week from now. And you had mentioned, Ella, into every life, some rain must fall. And, you know, the, initially we, when we hear something like that, it's like, oh, it's raining. But we're in Pennsylvania. We are recording right now on September 6th. We have not had a lot of rain. And as you all know, if you've been listening for a while, I have Siva, and so every morning I have to get up and Siva likes to go out for her walk. It's an important part of our day. So it's 7.30 this morning. It was pouring, but Siva still has to go out and do her business. And I tell you, the rain that was falling was part of the best part of my day today, to get outside and see the rain. It was still warm. I walked in the rain for about 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, I put my raincoat on to minimize. I even put Siva's raincoat on. But the rain felt so amazing. She was not in a hurry. She was walking around just like she always does, as if, you know, she didn't notice or was just thrilled to be out in the rain. And just feeling the coolness, feeling the moisture, breathing in uh, that scent of rain became an extremely positive thing for me. So, you know, maybe in addition to all the things that we're talking about, rain must fall, that there's an attitude and an acceptance for the things that are coming into our path, the things that come across our daily activities that might be challenging, but the attitude of embracing and stepping in rather than a resistance to really look at some of these trials that we go through. Carl Jung contended that what you resist not only persists, but it will grow in size. That if we spend a lot of time trying to avoid, to push away, to not deal with, those are the things that tend to stick around. But if you just go out and walk around and dance a little bit in the rain and just feel it, you know, experience it, Notice it for its positives because, my goodness, everything looks a whole lot more green right now than it did this morning. Maybe that's how we balance out that scale. Uh, and for from many of us, we have to practice that because that can, for someone who has never done that work and is in suffering, that can sound like everything, you know, that happens for a reason or it can sound like a platitude, something easier said than done. I'm doing loose quotes which is why I think what we do here offering the practices is essential to the mission that we have because it's giving a, a tangible thing that we can do to grow into that mindset because it is a mindset. And even in your talking about the rain, you gave many different relationships to rain. You know, that oh, I had to get up and it was raining and Siva didn't care and she's doing her thing and it was your favorite part of the day. And you know, my kids, I've seen them dance in the rain and it's a really fun, you know, and there are different kinds of rain. Sometimes it's stormy. You don't want to go out in that if there's lightning and there's, you know, dangerous conditions. And sometimes it's a light, you know, spring sprinkle that you're like, oh man, here comes the lush verdant green of spring. You know, there's, you know, all different ways to approach it. And for all the different types of rain, they're all also all those different ways that people approach. And as yoga teachers, we know that no one size fits all. We know that there is no one mindset or practice or experience that is going to be, excuse me, <clears throat> ubiquitous. But it's it, with the variety, with the buffet of options, there's something for everyone, even though there's no one thing that fits everyone. Yes. 
Yes, because that is kind of that holistic thing that we talk about, that we have, a, most people can have a little bit of everything in their lives. And it comes and goes and it wanes and it, you know, we've heard so many different transformational stories. And sometimes that transformation happens in a day. And sometimes it's years of really being in different situations, navigating through them. There are so many different ways that we go through the easier parts of our life and those that are a bit more challenging. And when I first started really thinking about these trials and this negativity bias, things being out of balance and asymmetric, I really did have to remind myself that sometimes when we look at challenging times, it can be a day. It can be an hour that we have to sit and look at something. And at other times, I can look back on my own life, and I'm sure others have their own experiences, and see that there were periods throughout there that I can look back and say, oof, that, that period of hard times was a bit longer, a bit more protracted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to cross a threshold of being able to transform from one situation to another. So what, you know, um, what are those practices? Well, but I'm really glad you said that because you brought up a really important point that for some and for some in certain situations, the transformation, the mindset shift, all of that can happen fairly quickly when there's awareness, when there's practice, or maybe there's a natural proclivity, or maybe uh, the person was born, you know, with that, that skill. And for many of us, you know, there's, it's different all the time, depending on the challenges. So, I mean, I've been formally practicing for about 23, almost 24 years. And so, you know, there is no quick fix. You know, life is a journey. We know this, you know, I'm not here to tell you, oh, you know, life is, oh, I'm not standing on the pulpit and, you know, spewing that. Um, I shouldn't say spewing or offering that. But what what is more likely, at least in my experience, is that, you know, there are little, almost imperceptible shifts along the way that gather in strength and power, sometimes when I'm not even noticing it. You know, so I'm, every morning I do my, my mindfulness meditation, I have my yoga practice, I do other chanting and mantra and whatever the, the practices that I do on a regular basis, semi-regular basis, you know, oh, I, why don't I do that today? But after 23 years, Along the way, there have been aha moments where I go, oh, that feels different, but it's very difficult to directly relate it to a specific practice or a specific time. But it's the, the gathering of all of this energy together with the intention of growing, with the intention of expansion. So, you know, recently, and I'm not, I'm not going into specifics in my story, but recently I had the opportunity to... And, if you haven't noticed at this point, I'm very opinionated about certain things and other things I try to give a wide berth, but I'm not afraid of spewing my shit out there. And so, you know, there's a time and place for that. And I had a moment where I realized it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter to this other person that I have the perspective and the wisdom and the knowledge to be able to offer this, this gift of that to this person because it's mine. It was my process. It is, you know, it may or may not be helpful to her or him or them or, you know, but I, by stepping back, I know I'm sort of trying to find a way to tell the story and it's getting a little clunky, but by letting go and saying, here's what I think, whatever you want to do, it's totally cool. In my body, I felt lighter. In my body, I felt the experience of a shift of my own mindset. So mind is not necessarily synonymous with brain, you know, the brain that you can touch and feel, but this mindset over time, because it, it's not, it wasn't the way I normally acted. It wasn't the way I showed up before, but almost, you know, sort of organically, it, I, I grew into this surrender. I think surrender is a really important part. And I think in the story that you just told, told Sherry, I took an awful lot out of that story. One of it was the ability to actively listen, not only to others when they want to share something that is a trial in their life, for us to develop a habit and a pattern to be able to actively listen and hear into the story, hear their emotions, and to be listening in such a way that we have 
we're holding a safe space that doesn't always require us to give our opinion or to say something, but to allow somebody to know that they're seen and they're heard and that we are here as a support without interjecting specifically how we would have handled that or this is what you should do, but just holding the space for, for them to be able to talk. I also heard that from my self-talk and some of the things that in, in the story that you were just sharing is to recognize that what my self-talk is. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And <laughs> the words I say to myself, I would never say to you or somebody else I was holding a space for. So not only is this active listening and this this practice of hearing and holding safe space and giving people the ability to share what's going on in their lives. But that same skill of active listening is to listen to our own thoughts. And for me personally, sometimes my, my internal conversation cannot be so, can be in a way that it's not so kind to myself. Like, oh, Teresa, what are you doing that for? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing the same thing again. <sighs> Right. So that to be able to hear that conversation and reframe it, reframe the situation for myself, like, oh, I fell into that again. Yes, yes, yes. I see you. I know that you're there. So what are we going to do? How can we how can I look at this situation and and consciously pick a new lens to look at it through? And then have a conversation with myself about that changed perspective that you were just referring to. I love that because you brought in both the um, the subject and the object. <laughs> you know, that there was this idea of the uh, user end experience, you know, the one that is on the other side, and then the experience of the of my end. You know, the um, when Amy was on, she talked about the two ends of the leash. Mm -hmm. You know, and that I think that's I love that image because it's true with all relationships. We're all holding the leash, holding the rope. Right. It's like we got to what do we do with this when we're in relationship with others? And what we do here is we tell stories and we honor that everyone has been writing their own story. So why would we impose our editorial wisdom on someone who's just in the middle of writing their own story unless they ask for it? You know, and even then to kind of say, all right, and then step back. I, I just think that that's, that's a very generous and beautiful thing. Yeah, well, you outed us last week, so I'm going to out us this week. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, we were having our planning meeting yesterday, and you had outed us last week about, you know, us going through our own little trial of just not understanding, not understanding where each other was coming from and then getting to the end and realize that we were both supporting the same position from different ways. We just didn't hear each other. Yeah. And in our planning session yesterday, you said, in the middle of me telling a story about something that I thought was important for us to discuss, you mentioned, you're like, so I wanted to interrupt and say, you know, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? But you told me you didn't. You sat back, you practiced your active listening, and then you said, why do you think that that fits in with here, with this? So that simple little changing of the lens, and it actually focused my attention because I didn't really know where the story had originated <laughs> from either. It came up. So I was talking about it when you asked me the question, how does that fit in with what we're talking about? Then I paused and I was like, oh, now I know why that story came up. And I was able to answer it. But because of us really evaluating how we had did and responded last week, mm -hmm. we were able to come through a, a small trial, a small misunderstanding or a potential small misunderstanding by reframing the yeah. situation and practicing our communication skills. Yes. And I think asking questions is the best way to, to, I don't know, fill that broken cup with that gold fill. You know, I was saying to you that I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of people in my life and I, that there's a lot of love going back and forth. And what I'm about to say is no implication that 
is not an implication that I think that they don't love me or that, you know, it's all about me or anything like that. It's really just about curiosity. And what I've noticed, especially since we've started these conversations and a little bit before, but I have certain very, very good friends who have never, ever asked me how the podcast is going or have not asked whatever it is. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I want to know what's going on in your lives. And it, and I like to talk about myself too. We like to talk about ourselves. So let's just be clear about that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I'm some like higher than, oh no, I, but, but because I like to talk about myself, I notice when no one else gives a shit or I shouldn't say that they give a shit, but not thinking about asking and that asking someone how they are, how is your day today? Like when my mom was sick, she said, the worst thing you could ask me is how are you? And she said, if you reframe it, how are you today? That made all the difference. So this comes into language. Mm. And I know we were talking about yesterday when we were thinking about this topic, the language we use in uh, our helper status. You know, Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers. If you're someone who is uh, who does acts of service, who is a helper with, you know, someone who is older in age or is infirm or needs whatever, or even just someone, maybe you're a kindergarten teacher or any kind of educator, any kind of health provider, any kind of human being, um, the language we use matters. Yeah. Yeah. And Genuine interest in the lives of the people that are around us. Yes, we do love to talk about ourselves and we would like that that would be reciprocal when we were asking others, you know, what's going on in your life and showing a genuine interest. But we never really know what, and you know, this might sound kind of like an off the cuff kind of platitude that's coming across. We don't know what it is for somebody to receive our smile, even if it's a random stranger. We don't know what it's like for us. You know, I had a simple thing yesterday. I was in a little bit of a hurry, but I wasn't acting like I was in a little bit of a hurry. And I was online waiting to check out a giant with some of my goods. And I walked up to the line and I was you know, in my place. And the woman in front of me looked at my cart and she looked at her cart and she's like, go ahead of me. (laughs) Now, I wasn't fidgeting or looking like I was like in a real hurry, but I kind of was. So maybe I misread it and she read something (laughs) I didn't see. But her one little teeny little act of, you go ahead. I have, you know, I have all of this stuff and you're going to be quick, made an impact in some things that I needed to do after. So, you know, although... We do like to talk about ourselves. There is a genuine interest in hearing other people's stories. I mean, that's what this is all about. We've been sharing our stories, right? That's what we do. The stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. Well, your language Um, just gave up your New Yorkness because when you said you were online at Giant, I actually, my first thought was you were ordering from the internet that you were ordering online. You were <laughs> online. Now, I lived in New York for almost 20 years, so I know that online means in line with the way we say it here in Philly. But just language, you know, if, it, if you hadn't said that, you know, that you had this actual physical interaction with this other person, I might think you were doing it on the interwebs. You know, language, that's kind of funny because I grew up in New Jersey and I would say, I'm going down the shore. And I've been called on that a lot. But that's it's, a very going, silly thing. That's a very I'm, silly thing. Yeah, it's a very Jersey thing, too. We're going down the shore. I mean, that's what we do all weekend, yes. But going to the shore, I've been corrected. You're not going down the shore. You're going to the shore. I was like, if you live in Jersey, you're going down the shore. (laughs) I I started saying to the beach as in rebellion to my silly roots, because we're going down the shore and we're going to get a Coke or something. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't get the Philly thing. So I was like, no, I'm going to the beach. Uh-huh. We can go yeah. to the beach or the shore, but I like to yeah. go down the shore. It's fun. Yeah, sure. And if you think about it, you are. You're driving down the shoreline on the road to the beach. <laughs> but anyway, that's a, I digress. Sorry about that. No, um, no, it's, it's language. And, you know, and that's the idiomatic expressions of different cultures, you know, the down the shore. Like I said, I had no idea it was a Jersey thing. I thought it was exclusively Philly. Because I had gotten shit for it my whole life, too. You know, but that was when I went to New York. And I figured New York and, like, northern Jersey are the same animal, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, but I'm from Central Jersey. Some ah. people believe it doesn't even exist. There's South Jersey and North Jersey, but where is Central Jersey? But aren't Jersey you, are you Brooklyn or Queens originally? Were you Brooklyn? Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the New York but, showing. Yeah, my <laughs> I moved when I was five, so it's all by um, family relation that I have my Brooklyn showing a lot. <laughs> my parents but, were from the Midwest and not Philly, not East Coast at all, and. I feel like sometimes I have some Midwestern, like my mother, she, my name on the birth certificate was S-H-A-R-I, but she pronounced my name Sherry. So she comes out East and people are calling me Shari. She said, I can't say Shari. She couldn't, she couldn't pronounce it. She says in the Midwest, you know, she didn't say this. I can say this because I can actually do the dialect. But she said in the Midwest, Mary got married and was Mary in Philly. <laughs> Mary got married and was merry. So like those little, you know, sounds, those little differences in the sounds, I have, a, like, I'm Sherry. That's, I hear my mother's voice. And so there's a Midwestern influence in my East Coast, you know, presentation where there's a Brooklyn influence in your Jersey. Yes. So not only language, but how <laughs> we say it is important. Right? <laughs> but that really speaks to, you know, but how the receivers hear us, there's this, these things that may not be conscious in not only the dialect that we're speaking, but we don't always know how our words land, how our body language will land. And I think that's really when we come back to this ability to actively listen, to hold safe space, to recognize that everything that we do is a method of communication. Um, whether we are leaning into somebody while we're talking all the way up against the screen and, you know, like in your face or like close talkers. I know that you like some of uh, <laughs> Seinfeld, Seinfeld the references, the close talker, or whether we're comfortably sitting back and listening. Yes. So as we go do through different things in our life and how we show up for others is really important. and. We talked about balance. I've already talked about balance and the asymmetry of our negative positive bias and our desire to feel like we're in balance. That also shows in our relationships. You know, they go through these different places where relationships are really balanced and life is going along well, or other times where there, there's an asymmetry where some of the people in our lives are asking for more attention or need more attention. And the focus is taken away from self and to others in service of. And then the times where we are the person who need the care and the love and the extra time and attention. And we want to see that that asymmetry has a balance to it, that we can be both giver and receiver in so many different ways. And that seamlessly moves us into the love language. But before we get into the five love languages, and I have, I have some opinions about this. Shocking, I know. But you bring up a really good point about balance, that balance is not a natural state of being necessarily. Sometimes it takes some effort to come into a balance. And what that balance feels and looks like for each person is going to be different. And that speaks to the fluidity of balance that you have talked about in the past. And I think that's a really, because we think, oh, we come into balance that there has to be everything equal. But I think that balance also has a different feeling state of consciousness about it. But so, you know, recently someone had, you know, sort of told me my love language was words and, you know, that hers was acts of service. And, you know, I thought, yeah, it, I, I'm a wordsmith. I love words. I love, I love seeing the best in people and telling them. I like telling someone at, at the store how beautiful they are. I do that all the time. My kid, I love that my kids get to witness me telling a stranger how beautiful they look that day. But that said, I'm not exclusively a word. I, I don't necessarily need that for myself. I don't necessarily need others to affirm me through words though I feel a very strong desire to affirm others through words. I don't, so the gifts are, these are the five love languages, words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. 
And I added visibility, like being seen and within the visibility is also hearing, like there's just to really be seen and, and heard. But I have no studies to support that. It's just something that seems to keep coming up. So I'm going to go through this list and I'm going to say that I, it's kind of like the doshas in Ayurveda. You know, they say that one is dominant. We're usually two, but I think most of us are tridoshic. We have all three. Whenever anyone tries to pigeonhole a person into being one thing, I, I go, wait, nope, stop shenanigans. I got to call shenanigans because we are so much more complicated than that. And I understand the desire and the value of reducing certain things to very limited options. You are this, this, or this. Because if the world around you feels chaotic, sometimes it can be an anchor. It can feel like, oh, I can work with this. And then all of the nuances can begin to, to surface. So words of affirmation. I love putting them out there. I like giving them to myself, but I don't require outside affirmation to feel affirmed. When it comes in, it feels good and I like it, but it's not my driving force, though giving it is. Quality time. And when I looked at these, it was basically about relationships, one-on-one -on -one romantic relationships. But quality yeah. time to me is essential. It is, and it, I mean, it's what memories are made from. It is where we can mine our lives for the gems and the, the lessons that will allow us to live our fullest selves. So yes, quality time both ways. So I sort of classified words of affirmation. I like to give quality time. I like to share. So that goes both ways. Receiving gifts. Meh. You know, if someone sees something that reminds them of me and feels really moved to get me something, okay. I much prefer giving gifts than receiving them. <laughs> like I love being able to see, oh my God, so-and-so will love this. And I, I love doing that. Receiving them feels good, kind of like the words of affirmation, but they're not required for me to feel that the depth of love or whatever that is. It's not my language. Acts of service. Absolutely. fucking -lutely. So receiving gifts, I give. Quality time, share. Acts of service, share. I think it's that is how we progress in this world. That is how we connect with other people and experiences it's through acts of service. As something as small as sending grandma's chicken soup to a friend who is sick, to showing up in what Leahy and I went to her cousin. She had had colon cancer. We went to the hospital in tiaras and tutus. And we danced around the ward and we helped and tried to make people smile with magic wands. Acts of service can be tiny and so full of impact and huge. And also like there's a whole range of that. So yes, share those acts of service and physical touch. Oh my God, yes. I mean, I'm, I know who I'm talking to across the screen here too. You are like touch personified. You are my touch whisperer, my touch guru, like there, but there is that, like I, someone for my 50th birthday, a good friend of mine gave me a t-shirt that said, hugging is my superpower. And it is to hug. And I will say to people, I'm going to hug you a beat longer than you're going to feel comfortable. So surrender, <laughs> like get comfortable because we're going to be here a while. <laughs> That's a share. That is you it, like, and Teresa has said this more than once. You can't touch something or someone without being touched back. So that is not a one-way communication. So I look at these five, you know, things, and I think anytime we say we are one thing, we negate the fact that we are also all of these other things, and the curiosity begins to tamp down a bit. So that is that is my dissertation on the love language. <laughs> you know, you, 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 we started talking, and you mentioned, you know, service providers and, you know, this this act of these love languages to be able to know what they are or what combination. I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent that there isn't a one thing, you know, we're holistic beings and we have even in different times, we might have a different love language or a combination of the love languages of things that we really, really enjoy offering to others and receiving. And I like that you mentioned that, you know, what we offer isn't always what we receive. And I think that's really perceptive for us to not only know what we want to receive, but what the people who are important to us in our life want to receive as well. And there's an art, I think, to having the balance of being a giver, a, a giver and a receiver. As a service provider who's who my job is generally to hold safe spaces for others in whatever it is that they come to my practice with. They come with pain or discomfort or whatever it is that their goal is. My job as a service provider is to hear, 
what their trial is at that time, whether it's pain in their body, stress, whatever it is, to be able to hear them and then to make some quality choices on which of my tools I will pull out of my toolbox and offer to see what they're going to pick up, what's going to work for them. So it is a journey that we walk together. It's a cooperative relationship to being able to try different tools, to try different things on, to make different offerings that require this level of listening and offering. And I have to say, after being a service provider for the amount of years that I have, sometimes it flips and it's harder for me to receive, to be the receiver of other people, to be the receiver of their intimacy when I'm so comfortable in the role as the provider, that can be the challenge. And maybe it's one that we don't often recognize that it can be just as hard to be the receiver. Like your mom said, don't ask me how I feel, but how I feel today made a huge difference for her to be the receiver. And then to be, to be so aware of how she felt that she said just that one word would make it a completely different experience for for her in her trial of whatever she was going through that she was able to communicate that this one little thing would make it much easier for her. And you did that when you started this part of the conversation, you talked about givers and receivers. And I think calling the receiver the receiver rather than the taker is huge. Because when you call someone a taker, there's a connotation that it's negative, that there's greed, that there's self-service, you know, there's the, all of that. And anytime there's someone giving something, there's going to be someone receiving it. So it's like that, again, an, another duality, like we can't escape that. Someone is, and would you want that person to not receive the thing that you are giving? And if you are giving something and expecting that the other side is somehow less because they are receiving what you're giving them by calling them a taker, that has that that is one word that I think we have to be very clear when we use it because it's it can feel really shitty to be called a taker. But to when someone receives something, that is a communal experience. The giving was meant to be received. It wasn't meant as a test or a trial to put someone else through so that you can call them a taker. You know, I think that that was really beautiful. And the other thing that came up was, you know, one day, one day in a year far from now, I'm going to do a TED Talk and it's going to be called Reading the Room, A Spiritual Act of Being Human. And that's about being able to sense the energy of the room and match it and meet it. My youngest, the other day we were talking and she said, you know, mom, sometimes or a lot of the times she says, I like to match people's energy. I'm like, oh my God, she's 15. And she said, you know, she was with someone who was upset and she just naturally, she's very empathetic. She felt upset. But then if if the room is quiet, she meets the quiet and sort of rises with it. If it's loud and boisterous, she can do that too. And it's not about being a chameleon. It's about respecting the energy of the room and opening up to receiving how it can change and meeting that too. So there's a flexibility, there's a fluidity, there's an understanding that you can be exactly who you are without compromising that to meet the energy of the room. And maybe sometimes even direct the energy of the room because kind of like the acting exercise when you do the mirrors, one Mm. person starts. And so this is a visual, so I don't know if this is gonna take a, a teaser or not, but I'm putting both of my hands up, Teresa is too, and I'm starting, I'm gonna make circles. And Teresa is going to follow my, my circle. And then I'm going to slowly move it into the other hand. And so I am directing this, but at some point, Teresa can take the lead and I will have to actively listen and watch for the moment when she is changing. And I, I'm changing my voice pattern because she has changed the pattern of the wave. So I'm going to release, release my hands now. So this idea that we can be in control and direct a situation And if we are cool in our own skin and able to kind of recognize that we live in community, this is our individual expression, but how do we connect to the community, to the collective, is we surrender and allow other people to begin to direct and we get to follow. So we're never always just in one leadership or follow role. We can fluidly, I love that you use the word fluid and now it's in my end, but we can fluidly move to where we are guided in this world, in this life. Yeah. and. 
you know, one of the things that I kind of knew, but really stood out in, you know, this whole conversation that we're having about the different trials that we go through is that transformation often happens because we're challenged. You know, we don't have need maybe for a major transformation when everything in life is going along smooth and happy. But when we're challenged, when things happen, maybe that's just that little, that little push, that little, okay, this is a, a time that it's, you're at that part in your life where there's a need to change. There's a need to grow. There's a need to move into whatever that next phase is. And one of the things that I really am fascinated with, I'm trying to find the name, is, you know, when we have these trials, when things happen in our life, you mentioned earlier, sometimes there's scars, whether they're metaphorical scars, physical scars, whatever they are. And I was introduced uh, by my son to a, I guess I'm going to call it a technique. I don't know that if that's what it is, but, and I'll probably not say this right, but Kinso, Kinsogi, Kinsugi, Kinsugi, I think it I is, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. And this is the process of changing broken things with a gold repair by, I don't know if it's Japanese or Chinese. I find it under both. So I'm not really sure of its origin story. But instead of throwing away a vase or a dish or a cup that's broken because it's not going to look right to repair it, the crack is highlighted with this gold repair, giving it this whole new sense of beauty for this piece. And so I began to imagine the different trials and tribulations or the scars as beautiful repairs. They, you know, there can be pieces that happen when we're going through a trial that maybe we feel a little bit disjointed. Maybe we feel like we're a little broken or shattered. But when we come back together, we have all of these gold repairs. And when I was telling you about this, I had the surgery on my hand and I hate the scar. The scar is big. For me, it's noticeable. I see it all the time. And I was telling you how much I didn't like it. And you said, oh, when I saw that at that party, like right after I had it, I had a party at my house. And you said, when I saw it, I thought you had this beautiful henna pattern on your hand. <laughs> so just this idea that you saw something completely different yeah. than I saw was able for me to, to reframe it into, you know what, this is a really healing part. You know, something happened. We needed to surgically address it. And the scar is that reminder of this trial. Maybe I should have asked them, could you make it gold? Gold fill. <laughs> you know, I never, knew, I never knew the name of it, but I, you know, I think in, in spiritual teachings, they often show the teacup with the, the gold fill in there. And it's a beautiful lesson. And they also talk in the same way about, you know, the, the light goes through the cracks. You know, that's where we see the light. And yesterday I was doing... I've decided to do my weekend meditations outside on nice days rather than upstairs looking out my window. I sit on the chair and I took a, a, a lesson from you, Teresa. And rather than doing my typical mindfulness meditation, I do an awareness meditation where I allow my awareness to just follow where it's called. And the first thing I saw, I turned to my right and we have this very old, it's like a 20-year-old cedar fence. And it's beginning to, you know, crack a little bit and it's got little tiny openings in the slats. And all I saw was this beautiful golden sunshine coming through the slats, but they were very small. So, but with all of them, it actually looked like this very large swath of gold light that was sort of flickering. And then my attention went up to above my house where we have this huge tree in the front of the house. And a few years ago, we had one of the limbs taken off because if it had fallen, it would have damaged our house or hurt someone. So mm. it looked like an amputated limb. And I kept in that moment, I was like, I need to write a poem about having meditated on an amputated limb. Like I sat there and I just watched how the foliage around it was so lush and how healthy and alive everything around this amputated limb was and how just cutting off that piece did not make the experience of the tree any less whole or beautiful or alive in this world. And it felt so incredible. And then today I'm watching lots of little videos, all these 
you know, TikToks and reels and shit that comes through. And there was a beautiful one about a young woman. She was 24, a, a runway model, comes from a model family. And she ends up getting toxic shock syndrome from a tampon. And they had to amputate one of her legs below the knee. And then later on, she had the other one amputated off. And so amputated limbs. This is the next day, an actual video about a human with amputated limbs and her process of moving through this feeling of everything is over. She had to move through that, though. She had to feel the despair and the grief before she could see the light. So at that moment in her life, when the doctor wrote yes on one leg and no on the other leg, implying which one was to be severed, and her mother kissed that leg. Oh, my God. Like, she's mm. thinking, no, don't let them take it. And there's this this grief that is happening even before the action. And to see where she got to, now she's, you know, way, you know, on the other side of it now, the gifts of that experience, she said now she feels beautiful on the inside as much, as much on the inside as on the outside. Whereas before her sort of landmark for beauty was, was exterior, was male, male energy. Now she's got some of that female energy informing how she expresses and feels and relates to beauty. I think that you sent me that video and I watched it as well. And it really relates to a lot. In one story that she told about her trial, right, that she, on the other end, at the end of this video, she talks about the major transformation in her life due to this really hard circumstance. I think even in the end, she's mentoring some other, she tells the story about being in the airport and this young boy looking at her gold leg and asking his mommy, can I please have a gold leg like that? Yeah. You know, his view of it was that it was beautiful and he wanted it so much. And she became a mentor and working with others. So this transformation that she went through began with this resistance. I don't want to do this. And you know, some of the research that I've looked at was that some of the hardship comes from that resistance, not knowing that we don't want to go through the process, that this is going to be hard. This, you know, this is something that I'm facing, but I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to look at this situation. I don't want to feel whatever's going to happen. But by the end of this, she was talking about somebody who was envious of her gold leg and her ability to accept the things that she could not change, mm -hmm. right? So we can go into the serenity prayer there. You know, she realized that she had no ability to change this. Mm -hmm. She had to accept it and go through this really hard situation. But when she came back out, just like you said, when she got to the other end, she was like, I learned to love the inside parts of me in the same way that I had always loved the outside parts. And I think that is just a beautiful outcome to the other side of resistance, which is acceptance. And that goes back to how we ended last week's episode with Ida and Pingala and Sushumna, the three main nadis. The, as we talked about the chakras, we didn't get into a whole big thing about it, but we talked about the central channel, Sushumna, that affliction and wisdom cannot share the same space. So while on the one side is, if only I had, you know, my legs, I'd be happy. If only I had, you know, my health, I'd be happy. If only I had, if only I didn't have toxic shock, I'd be happy. If only I didn't have whatever the other things were, I could be happy. Those are the afflictions that cross that central channel that when she was able to release those choke points and allow them to return to where they you know, either dissolved or dissolved into the side channels, she could live in the wisdom of mentorship. She could live in the wisdom of, of acceptance and non-resistance and that kind of experience. So I think in that effort of coming into balance on the other side, that it took a journey to get there. It was not a quick fix. It didn't happen overnight. And so while our words matter, our timing matters. And, you know, and, and it all comes back to reading the fucking room. <laughs> My God, that that room is always here giving us a mirror to look at. And, internal and, and external. Internal yeah. and external. Yep. Maybe it's kind of a good time to, you know, we've talked about the trial. We've talked about hardships. And in some way, maybe that feels big and overwhelming. Maybe we can look at it in a little bit of some smaller terms, just simply reducing it to 
the imbalance in our brain's affinity or training to find the negative and places where maybe there is danger. But maybe if we reduce it to just whether we have a negative or a positive attitude to what's going on, what are some of the practices that I've come across? This came in something called uh, a website called Medical, M-A-R-Q-U-E medical.com. And it was, we can put that in the show notes, of course. And it, the article ends with overcoming negativity. And maybe this is a great offering of practices on how we might be able to do that. And step one was to recognize, to learn to recognize what is actually real in the situation. And we have talked about this when I told my donut story. What are the facts and what are the story that we're creating around the facts? So what is real in this situation and what is maybe made bigger by my own resistance to it or my story that I'm putting in or my after the because of what somebody else is doing? What is real? What are the facts? The other is living in the moment, right? Can I step away from what used to happen? All of those things that I'm holding on to that are so hard to let go of sometimes, or my worry and anxiety of what's going to happen in the future. How do I bring myself into this moment by focusing on my breath or looking at that light coming through the cracks to be in the moment that we're in? and assess it for exactly what it is this very moment. Can I be positive? And sometimes I, I really struggle with the, is this a toxic positivity where I'm saying, oh yeah, life is wonderful, but I don't think it is that. I, I'm really looking at being positive more in being able to live in a life of noticing what I can be grateful for. You know, I have a roof over my head. Not everyone does. I have food on my table. Not everyone does. So I'm not trying to minimize anybody else's struggles. But what is it that I can be grateful for and positive that's in my life? Taking things that are stressful and negative, And is there an action or a gift of service or just an action for myself, a practice that I can say, I'm going to dedicate myself to this practice in an effort to turn this into an action. Maybe it's just a random act of kindness or a simple little smile to a passerby could be turning that negativity into an action. And choosing, like your daughter said, she can match energy in the space that she's in. But when you can match energy and you choose to do that, Maybe it's also important to recognize that we can fill our life with people who are uplifting and to recognize that negativity can be contagious. And if we find ourselves in places where it is contagious and we can adopt somebody else's energy, that maybe we can excuse ourselves from those situations at times for short term or long term to find our way back to the balance and along are able to take that next step in our journey. Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to go into a practice that was from the article, Surprising Benefit of Going Through Difficult Times. I want to say her name is Mergain, M-I-R-G-A-I-N. She says her favorite, I, I guess it's a her, I keep going defaulting to her, but I will say they. Their favorite strategies for processing emotions is expressive writing. I know we do a lot of talk about writing and, and you know, contemplative practices like that, but ex- this is a quote. Expressive writing is best during the times we experience something mild to moderate, not a deeply traumatic event. Mergain shares that expressive writing has been shown to reliably improve both psychological and physical health by reducing stress and enabling us to reframe the events we're experiencing. I just want to pause there and say, this is really so much of what our mission is, is to not only connect the individual to the collective, but these are the stories that our bodies hold. And this is how we hold them in our psychological and physical experiences and all little koshas. Remember that season one? When writing, getting back to her word, their words, when writing, we place ourselves in the role of the hero or heroine not the victim, 
And as a result, this is, I think, so important. We place ourselves in the role of the hero or the heroine when we're writing. And as a result, it allows us to shift our perspective and find new meaning in our experiences. So she says, they say, our personal narrative shapes our, the view of our world and how we see ourselves. Oh, and it says she said, she is a she. Okay, writing about what we've been through and the meaning we're making from the experience allows us to make sense of our experience and often find the silver lining in the situation. So she offers some writing prompts, some possible ways into this writing that she, she calls expressive writing. What do I want to be about in the face of this difficulty? What do I want to be about? How is this affecting me and how do I want to show up to this difficulty? What would the person I want to be do right now? What would that ideal version of myself in this situation do? And what is the gift from this experience? What am I taking away from this adversity that I did not have before that will serve me later? And if only that you went through it and that the going through it and experiencing it will necessarily create a cushion of energy for the next time. You know, it may be a really thin layer of cushion, but it's there. You know, it's that experience that builds on the next one, on the next one. So, you know, get out that journal and write, write, write. It's not about journaling, but it's about really diving in and doing the work and being curious about your own nature. Yeah, get curious. Oh, man. And also, I just wanted to maybe end on the note that we talked about a lot today. And we also gave, I just gave like five different things about overcoming some of these trials. And then you've offered different suggestions with the love languages and rating. But in the end, one simple, tiny step that's accessible has a lot of power. So not becoming overwhelmed with, oh, I've got all of these different practices that I can have, sometimes too many can be also a little bit paralyzing. So the first step might be a real simple little one, but it always has power. There's action that comes at the beginning of change and transformation. And maybe it's just simple, whatever is the most accessible and accessible practice, no matter how simple it might appear, can really be huge in the process as that very, very first step. So, you know, simplify is often the way to go. <laughs> it's a kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Yes. The kiss, the kiss model. But also, you know, the practice may simply be an action. It doesn't have to be a practice. It can be, what is one thing I can do today? Maybe go out and shoot some hoops. You know, you can call it a practice. You know, take a walk. You know, call a friend you haven't spoken to in a while, something that some action that will generate that, that doing. We have things coming up. We have programs coming up. We have a retreat that we're in the middle of developing right now that we will give you more data about later when we have more data. But there are three days in November that we are looking to, and we hope that if you're local, that you'll join us. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>